As we get started today, um, this is a preview service. So I'll be preaching the same message next week. I'm just kidding. That's not true. Just saying you're paying attention. Um, I, I was thinking about what to talk about. And I, I've known for a while that our launch week was going to be how to build a garden. That's, I mean, it's, it's right, down, you know, right down the middle lane. It's exactly what we want to do, who we want to be. But there's a step that comes before that. If you jump right into the work without acknowledging the work God's doing on you, that work will never come to fruition. And so the, the passage today is not how to build a garden, which is next week, come for part two, classic pastor move. Um, today is how to be a garden. And I think this is what Jesus gets at as he opens up this moment in Luke. Um, I think that would be best for us to consider. Another reason we have the kids in here today is, is our core team's going to be back there all day with the kids. So this is a great message, not just for everyone here today, but maybe especially um, for our team as we've been praying about this for a year. How to be a garden, how to set that foundation before we engage in the work and the calling that Jesus has for us. And so this scene is set. It occurs in two other Gospels, in Matthew and Mark. I like Luke because it gets right cuts right to the chase. Um, I think it's Matthew has him on a beach. This doesn't necessarily disclose where he is. What matters is that Jesus is bringing this moment, this teaching, this parable, um, after moving through several towns and cities. He's starting to gain an audience. People are starting to follow him based on what they've heard. And so the crowd is growing, and of course, Jesus is like, well, let's introduce a really difficult concept about the definition between hearing and listening. And he walks into uh, this parable. If you don't know what a parable is or you've heard the, the word, it's just simply, it's like a metaphorical statement. It's packed with deeper meaning and significance. And the reason Jesus spoke in parables is to provoke, not to make people upset, although that happened quite a bit, but to provoke people's thought, their consideration. The way to engage with a parable is to wrestle with it. And so when you hear Jesus speak in parables, sometimes we have like, I mean, Sunday school can do this. It's, you know, that's not a problem at that age. Uh, although when Jordan said first grade, he went like this. I was like, some, I've seen my son. He's very tall, but not this tall. Um, it, it's to engage with it. The point of this is to, is to really understand that there's something else there. It's not just a comparison or simile. I was an English teacher. I know all those words. It's that there's something deeper to dig down to. Jesus wants you to search for truth because he honors that search. And so Jesus comes, and he brings this word to the crowd, and they all listen, and they're like, oh, okay. Um, and you can kind of imagine, especially after the disciples are the ones to ask him, hey, what does any of this mean? That the people who first heard him speak in this parable might have been like, this means something. This guy does cool stuff. We'll, we'll just kind of keep listening. That's the first step, right, is, is hearing. But Jesus ends that parable, and it's important there, right in verse, um, verse uh, 8. Uh, let anyone with ears listen. Not just hear, but listen. And so the disciples take him up on this opportunity to ask about this parable. Now, you might have, especially if you grew up in church, you know about these disciples, these 12 men who follow Jesus, who, who kind of tend to go back and forth. They oscillate between, between thinking maybe too much of themselves, like when they're fighting for position around Jesus, or too little of themselves. And Jesus, in his graciousness, he was really great about pulling them away often from either of those ditches and engaging with them in the spirit of that question. And so it might be easy for us on occasion to dismiss the disciples as dummies. Like, 
how could they be so dumb? They literally just saw Jesus do a miracle. Like in Matthew, he's telling this parable right after he does healings and exorcisms and like casting out demons. I mean, it's like crazy stuff. And they're like, I don't, I don't quite get, what do you mean by this new kingdom? What does it look like? But it's not their foolishness. Um, in some ways, we're closer to God than they ever got to be. The spirit is dwelling within us. And yet, how often do we forget who Jesus is or what he says or what the kingdom represents? And Jesus doesn't encounter our questions or greet them with dismissal. God welcomes them. And this is what's important for us. So what makes the disciples compelling is that in their experience, we see so much of the grace of Jesus. They aren't with him for performance or exceptional intuition. They ask questions, lots of them, and some of them seem dumb, but their belonging is never threatened by their seeking. So I think before we even continue, there's a word of encouragement there for you. If you're in a place with big questions, and we live in a day and age with really big questions, massive things like government and society and security and the way we set up the economy, but also intensely personal modern questions about identity and purpose and future, it is a gift to see a God who welcomes questions as a part of belonging and not a part of separation. And so before we even continue, consider that. And look how Jesus answers them. He answers them first with this quote. Uh, he, he quotes from Isaiah. Now, it's important that Jesus starts here. He doesn't get right to the answer. And the reason he's doing this is he's affirming his calling in them as well as his, his sovereignty over that calling. He's probably calming some nerves as well and maybe easing some frustrations. You'll notice, I think, like when I read this the first time, it felt like the disciples kind of pulled him away in a huddle and they were like, what does any of that mean? But the reality is this crowd didn't go anywhere. And they were probably loud. So the disciples were asking this question out loud. And I would imagine most of the people listening were excited to hear. Now, this is important because Jesus is not just making a distinction between the disciples and other people. He's making a distinction between people who have faith and people who don't. People who accept him and people who reject him. And this is what he says. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to others I speak in parables so that looking they may not perceive and listening they may not understand. He's setting the foundation for what he's about to walk into in this parable. And it's right there. It's the difference between true perception and understanding. It's an important place to start. We went a few weeks ago. You get to do fun stuff when you're in the planting phase, like the prep phase, like, oh, we don't have anywhere to meet this week. Let's do a field trip, right? And it sounds cool, but also it's like desperation. Like, well, we, we could worship outside. It's 105 degrees. There are churches out here doing that. We love them. Akuo, if you're anywhere listening, we love y'all. But for us, we said, well, hey, we, don't, we only have so many weekends to celebrate as a team. Let's go to the San Antonio Museum of Art. If you haven't been, it was awesome. It was double awesome because it was free that morning. Uh, so we went as a team with one set of instructions, it was like, choose your favorite piece, and just in our group me, drop it, maybe talk about why. And there's so many amazing pieces of different art, different genres, there's sculptures, there's paintings, um, there's Renaissance paintings, there's contemporary stuff, there's really disturbing stuff, there's cool stuff. Naturally, I gravitated towards a really disturbing painting, and it was the stoning of Stephen. And it was painted by a Latin American artist with these like vibrant strokes and colors, and I found myself just staring at it. And it wasn't enough to just look at it. I started to think about it and dwell on it, to wrestle with it. And there was a certain, certain level of understanding that emerged the longer you looked at it. And trust me, we were there for about an hour and a half, and we blazed through that, but I stopped in front of that thing. 
And as I stopped in front of it, another woman who wasn't part of our group stopped in front of me to look at it, which normally I'd be like, okay. But I'm watching her look at it, and I'm thinking about the crowd in front of Stephen, if you don't know, who was martyred and stoned in Acts. And now I'm thinking about this painting in a three-dimensional way. And all of that is perception and understanding. It's not just looking. There's a deeper thing. This is what Jesus is talking about. So he goes into this parable, and he honors the disciples' questions by explaining four kinds of soil. Another reason I like Luke is he's like, it's just four. It's nice and sweet. If you read some of the other ones, there's like six. Let's just look at four today. It's all talking about the same thing. He starts by saying very quickly, the word of God is a seed. And what does this mean? A seed is perfect as it is, but its perfection is expressed as potential. A seed is not a tree, but it holds within it the perfection of a tree. And so a seed is perfect in the condition it is, but there are things that need to happen for the seed to become perfect in a different manifestation or demonstration of what it essentially is. And this is true of the Word of God. It is holy it is here for us. It is perfect, but it's meant to be something you carry with you so that you might realize the potential of growing up into what God has called you to be. And so right as he starts, Jesus is explaining that this parable is more than about receiving a gift. It's about stewarding it. It's about caring for it, using it. The word of God has been given to us to do something with it. A seed that's never sown is a tragedy of potential. So Jesus goes on, he explains, the first, the first thing to know about this parable and something that becomes clear as Jesus continues is that he's teaching about depth. Where's the worst place to put a seed? It's on the surface, right? He's talking about depth. Now, if you're like into plants, you're like, well, actually there's one, I'm just, in general, we're talking about Jesus' cultural context, calm down, all right, it's gonna be okay. I have lots of plants, but they're all the kind that are really hard to kill. We'll get into that later. Um, Jesus is talking about the place where faith grows and thrives, and he's laying out scenarios that might keep that seed at the surface. In other words, that might keep faith shallow. And so in this first scenario, the seed that's thrown on the path, and if you didn't know the way that seeds were sown at the time, I mean, it wasn't like a street. The, they would cast their seed, and the point was to cast as much of it as possible. And sometimes these kinds of terrains would be right up next to each other. And so it would be dumb to kind of walk here and to walk here while well, saving it. You cast it everywhere. Because the point is things grow sometimes in unexpected ways, but the more seed you cast, the more likely something will grow, and sometimes in surprising ways. And so in this first, he's describing what it looks like when some of that seed falls on the path. And this first scenario is people who hear the gospel, but the seed of the word of God never breaks the ground of their heart. And so their lives remain exposed. The devil comes like a bird, it says, and snatches the seed, and they're taken away before they ever understand what it looks like for the word of God to take root in their hearts. That's a harsh reality, but it's true. Some people will not receive the gospel. And why is that? It's because their hearts are hardened. This is a word that Scripture talks about a lot, that they, they've been worn down, whether by circumstances or choices, pressed down to the condition of stone, and that's a picture of a path, that the softness has been worked out of their hearts for whatever reason. And maybe you know the people, or you've been that kind of person, where your heart feels callous because of wounds that you've received or regrets that you have. 
Maybe, maybe these people have stony hearts because um, they're ignorant or they've outright rejected the gospel. In any case, this is the exact scenario that God longs to fix. Way back in Ezekiel 36, God promises this, a new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will move, remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. And so I want us to understand here that these four soils that Jesus lays out, they're not mutually exclusive scenarios. He's talking about two mutually exclusive outcomes, as we'll get to. The fruit-bearing heart and the broken, stony heart. This is what we're talking about today, is outcomes. And the reason this is important is because depending on the season of your life, you might experience all three of these paths that he's talking about. You might have a season where you feel like you are on the path. You are not beyond the graciousness of God. As we'll get to, you might know what it looks like to walk through trials or temptations and to fail at both, but you are not beyond the grace of a good God. I love that it says that, that the devil comes right away as soon as the seed is planted. And isn't this what the devil does? Like I, It's unique for me to now be in a position in ministry where I'm on this part in this role, preaching and leading. I'm, I'm enjoying it. For so long, I led worship. But all this summer, I was like, had the opportunity to preach at other spaces. And, you know, you go into a church you're not usually at, and you're preaching, and like five minutes in, there's someone you don't know asleep in the back row, and you're like, is it me? Is it, is it, is this, especially if it's a different denomination, you're like, do they know I'm Baptist? And so, but, but we've all been in that space, right? Like, I'd be lying to you if I said I'd never fallen asleep during a sermon, including the ones of my own that I watched back. But this is what Satan does. He gets to work, and that work is noise, it's distraction, um, it looks like disor dis discord or disunity or sin or ambition or pride. It looks like coming to church with preference or, or judgment. It looks like alienation or hopelessness or anger or bitterness. Sometimes it looks like exhaustion or worry, or anxiety. You can't sit in a place of rest like we talked about in Psalm 149 when we opened the service. The devil will use anything that can separate you from the understanding that you need the gospel. What he's trying to do is he's trying to make you feel full. And so the first way to be a garden is to be hungry. It's to recognize why you were made and to ask God to fulfill that purpose with the treasure of his word and his voice. You were made to flourish. The potential that is in the seed of the word of God was meant to flourish in the blooming of your life. Jesus continues. There's a second kind of person. And these are people that hear and respond, but they are rootless. Their faith is never nurtured in testing, and they spoil this faith unused. They fall away. I think this is important for us. We should be more honest about faith. Jesus isn't dismissing trials or heartaches or circumstances. He's not going like, this second group of losers, they just didn't stick around. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this second group of people encountered really, really, really difficult things, and it broke them. Sometimes wonder if our lack of honesty about faith is unknowingly creating shallow believers. We don't often talk about the dynamic nature of faith. And so people who have questions or doubts or walk through a season of separation or numbness or hurt, they think that it's lessening their faith. 
But what Scripture is showing us is that it is strengthening their faith. Just like the disciples came with their questions, in the time of trial, we might come with yearning and desperation to a God that longs to hear us and speak to us. Now, there's a balance to strike. Like, we're called to be hopeful but not delusional, right? Everything's going to be great. You just come, you pray, you're going to leave, you're going to have your best life ever. Uh, we don't like, we don't like uh, that idea of the prosperity gospel, but we sometimes attach it to lots of other things, like marriage. If you get married, married in a church, everything's going to be fine and okay. And anybody here who's been married and in the church knows that's not always the case. There's a reality. The flip side, though, is we're called to be honest and not fatalistic. And so maybe you've been in a conversation. I'll never forget. The day Jen and I got married, uh, we went, we did this, which, by the way, I recommend this to everybody, we didn't get married really late in the day. We got married at like a little after lunchtime and people hung out and then we went back like we weren't exhausted. We're like, oh, we got the whole day. We can hang out. So we went to dinner that night on the Riverwalk and we got to this restaurant. We're sitting down. The waiter's like, you guys celebrating a special occasion? Like, yeah, we just got married. He's like, really? When? And I'm like, three hours ago. He's like, wow. Um, it was longer than that. Our party was not that lame. Anyway, I was just starting out of time. Um, <laughs> several hours ago and he's like, oh, man. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, my brother, he just got married. I'm telling him, man, watch out. I've been married. It's just really, really hard. And he's like going on. And I'm like, what is happening? You know, or if any of y'all have been parents uh, and, and, you know, you, you might be pregnant and your friends are like, oh, good luck. You're like, I love their kids. What, what happened? What happened to make them that way? It's not just in that scenario. If, for those of you in college and you're about to graduate and you've talked to people who are working full-time jobs, they're like, get ready. It really sucks on the other side. <laughs> like, what do I have to look forward to, you know? Um, we often have these conversations with people in that next phase of life, um, and they feel really discouraging. There's a way to craft discipleship that is honest about struggles but remains um, hopeful and joyful. And this comes when we look at discipleship not as a moment of decision. This is kind of that old school revivalism. But instead, look at it as a way to not receive like a degree. I am a Christian now. But to receive like a certification. You have a new way of life. As long as you are active, you can operate in this way. This is what it looks like. Faith is something that you walk out. It's not a concept. It's not an idea. It's a life. It's something you do. And sometimes we get lost in these two ditches of faith. There's the shallow emotionalism where faith becomes a feeling. And when you stop having that feeling, it's like, well, maybe I'm not connected to God. Or faith is intellectualism. If I can understand my way. But the truth is, faith is an anchor when both things fail you. Faith is there for you when your feelings are at their depths. Faith is holding you up, right? It's defying your feelings while acknowledging your emotions and your hurt. And faith sometimes defies logic, but Jesus says it never defies understanding, which are two different things. There is no logic to the Son of God coming down to die for you on the cross and to, and to raise again. It defies logic, and yet you can understand it when you walk out of misery into his light. This is faith. It might defy expectations, but it's faith that is received in a space of desperation. This is how you hold it. How else could we receive these words from Paul in Romans 8? I am convinced that neither death nor life, which always brought me pause. 
the lows or the highs, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus meets us in the testing and in the trial, and we need his spirit to provide peace that defies logic and sustains us in our brokenness from being lost to hopelessness. We need the spirit to renew our hearts and our minds. And what a grace that we don't have to write the story of our lives in the process. We often receive that gift right here with others. The reality of, of your struggle, and there are those of you who've walked through some really, really difficult things, is that your pain is unique. It's unique to you, to your circumstances, but it's similar enough that you can know people who walk through what you did that can tell you, hey, there is another side. Um, I, I used to think, this is definitely a generational thing. So I'd like to think I'm young. Um, I'm, I'm really not. My brother's in the back going, no, you're not. Thanks. Um, don't remember Blood Brothers as a kid? You know, like cut your hand and you shake. We don't, we don't do that anymore for a lot of reasons. But that idea of like, may, our friendship is, is strengthened by the meeting of wounds. I mean, as a kid, you don't, none of that. It's like, this looks cool. I cut myself. But as you get older, you're like, there's something to that. And I, I think this is why Jesus comes down to receive just an inconceivable amount of pain so that our wounds might find a place to meet his wounds. And he's still doing that in the church, that the wounds you have when you walk in vulnerable enough to put them out in the presence of God and his people, they encounter other wounds. And in the process, they're healed together. This is kind of my issue with deconstruction. I think deconstruction is a good thing, at least if it can be done faithfully, which is kind of an ironic description. Just go with me with this for a second. Um, do we think we're the first people to ever have issues with the church? Like, ever? I'm, I'm here today with one of my best friends in the world who's Catholic. I'm Protestant. Like, our friendship is deepened by the history of the church and the issues that people had and the questions. And I'm right, but we'll get to that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I'll pray for you um, without a middleman. I'm just kidding. So I'm totally kidding. I love you. I love you. I love you. Andy's my, my biggest prayer warrior. Um, I'm not kidding about that. So, um, cause he's got an army of people praying with him. Anyway, um, I was thinking about this in the context of, of deconstruction and there's something that comes with being honest with yourself in your questions. And there's questions that come from hurt that are real, the questions that you should ask. There are questions about, that, that come from real frustrations, real worries or doubts. You should not be hesitant to ask those questions. But what Jesus is outlining here is that he's the perfect audience for those questions. And so... I'm not giving you a Sunday school answer to take your deconstruction to somebody who is, is, has a shallow faith. It might be positive, but has a shallow faith. I'm asking you to talk to people who have the same wounds and see how they got to where they were at. And I think you'll discover that the same spirit that has brought them to a place of understanding, even if it's not quite the space of logic, but a, a place of understanding, of clinging to the word of God, in the midst of, of what is tempting to hopelessness or rejection, when you talk to those people, your faith is deepened and it's strengthened. 
It might look different on the other side of those questions, but you connect with people who have understanding and it leads you to the same place because the same spirit that was at work in them in their season of deconstructing what shouldn't have been there is the same spirit that has brought you to that place to know them, to ask those same questions, and to follow Jesus through them. This is not about an easy faith, a performative faith. This is about a faith with depth And if you're the person who's walked through those things, your responsibility is to have the patience to hear those questions as well, not to dismiss them. Even if there's generational barriers, experiential barriers, gender barriers, your responsibility in carrying light, which we'll get to in a moment, is to receive those questions. And so the last, this this part, the second thing, we stay hungry. That's how we be, be or become a garden, and we stay hopeful. We'll continue. Jesus goes to the third one. These are people who hear and respond, and they even probably grow some roots, but they're fruitless. They walk but never seem to move as temptations form like a ceiling on their potential. I'll go back to the kind of plants that I can keep alive. Uh, if, you, if you could guess, most people can keep alive like pothos plants. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many I have that I clipped off at a Merit or a coffee shop here and just took home to propagate. It's it's a cheap way to have plants. Anyway, um, sorry, Merritt. Um, or snake plants. They've, they've found snake plants growing in caves. They don't need tons of light, and they grow really tall. It's pretty crazy. I, I've still managed to kill a couple, but, but they're pretty easy to keep track of. The interesting thing about snake plants is they grow very tall, but their root system's about this big. They're really easy to pull out of the ground, and I know this because we have one particular snake plant by the back door, and I regularly pass by, and it's out of the dirt on the left side, and I'm like, Leland? And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, Dad. I, I was going to tell you. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, very shallow roots. You just pull it out and take it out. This is what Jesus is describing. It's people who do grow, but their root system is so shallow that they are swayed, and eventually um, they miss out on the purpose they were called to. They, they have nothing to show for this faith that they claim to carry or even believe in their mind that they carry. Um, I, I, think, I, I think the thing that, that we need to understand is that fruit bearing requires energy. You only have so much bandwidth, right, to produce. And you were called to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And there's a hope in that manifesting in your life, in your home, in your friendships for the world. But that requires a focus. It requires a bandwidth. How many of y'all, um, again, back to plants. I'm almost done. We're the garden. Just get used to it. If you clip the, you, sometimes you have to prune. You have to clip leaves. I'll never forget Abby. She's sitting there in the back row holding it down in prayer, for sure. The, um, she walked into my office at our sending church, and was, I was like, check out this plant. It's really long. And she's like, yeah, but like all the leaves are falling off. It's just a big, ugly string. And I was like, but it's long. It looks cool, right? She's like, no, you have to clip that because it's like taking all of its energy just to keep that big, ugly string going. Um, I think we're invited in this third scenario to consider what puts a cap on our potential. What's robbing our fruit-bearing energy? Um, You can think of this third scenario as a plant in suspended adolescence. And I'm very aware of this as I step into pastoring, maybe more so as I step into my 40s (laughs) in a few years. Um, There's a tipping point, right, in in speech and presentation, rhythms and hobbies um, where growth can be hidden or it can be sapped. Um, where people in ministry, they, they like look way younger than they are, and you're like, mm, something's off there. Um, 
at a certain point, you're like, you don't look like where you're at in life. And I don't say that as a judgment. I say that as a reality. Um, I also say that wearing sneakers to preach, but that's a generational thing. Mom, I'm sorry. She wanted me to wear a suit. Um, I, I invite you to think about what caps your potential. Jesus describes the things that chokes out potential as thorns. And why is that? Because they grow quickly and they grow in proximity. They look like success and achievement. They offer pleasure and purpose, but they are fakes of what we're truly after. Not only are these things dying themselves, but they are killing us. And I got to tell you, with a lifetime in church, this is the scenario that gives me the most pause. And it's really where we'll land uh, here this morning. Um, more than my ADHD, which is a real thing, I, I, I definitely have it, um, there's a threat in how my heart is conditioned to chase distractions. What looks like success to me? Has the language of my goals and aspirations been corrupted by the world, or is the kingdom evident when I talk about my future, my hopes, my dreams? Do the passions of my life here lift my heart to God and anchor me right where I'm at, or do they lift me from a place where I can't see my home, my community, my job, my life with his perspective. You know, Jordan and I have been planning our, our series out for a couple years, like out, we, we like it. We're, we're doing a series, so come back in May. But we're doing a series on the songs of ascent. And these were the songs that the people of God would sing together on their way to Jerusalem on a holy pil pilgrimage uh, a couple times a year, two or three times a year. And on the way, there were it's a long journey. I mean, it's hot. We can kind of understand some of that right here. There's, there were distractions. There were other things that were promising a kind of rest to keep them from getting to this place. And so they wrote these songs almost as a defiance. This has always been the case for God's people. On the journey somewhere with them, encountering distractions and temptations. And sometimes those are good things. What distractions look like good things, but in the context of your life are robbing you out of the gift of bearing fruit? Is it a struggle to be present? Do you settle for what you can manufacture now instead of walking faithfully to a promised bloom that you can't see yet? Do you long for escape more than resurrection? What stuff, what distractions, temptations, goals, visions are taking the best of you now from the best God has for you? Are you more age than perspective? Are you more stature than substance? And this is Jesus' third description and warning. And it requires of us a third thing. If we want to be good soil, we have to be honest. We have to be honest with ourselves. And so if we're looking at this parable altogether, I think God gives us some tests. And it's all leading to this fourth question. But are we hungry? Do we really understand our need for the gospel? Are we hopeful in the midst of trials are we honest in the midst of temptations? All of these are deeply, deeply important, and they lead us to a fourth consideration. Are we holy? Are we remaining holy? You know, in the Old Testament, the prophets, they had lots of tests. I mean, the first one was easy. Did what they say come true? If it didn't, it's like, well, this guy is a joker. Um, the second thing was, did it have an effect on God's people? Did it call them to repentance? But the third thing was a character question. It was, do they live like they believe who they claim to speak for? And so how do we remain holy? This is the key to understanding, not just to hear, but to listen. And when you truly believe that God speaks and that we can listen, it leads us to a place of treasure. Look at what David says in Psalm 119. With my whole heart I seek you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. I treasure your word in my heart. 
so that I may not sin against you. This is the opposite of shallow faith. It's faith in the depths. I treasure your word deep in my heart so that I might not sin against you. In the end, that's the good soil. The good heart, the one that bears fruit, that holds tightly to the promises of God, that's honest enough to acknowledge its real condition, it receives the word of God like its life depends on it. And that's the place where we are called to be. And that's the place where fruit starts to bloom. And we have to recognize that this is a process. It takes time. And as Jordan said, when we are doing the meet and greet, this isn't a solo project. It's a group project we get to do together. I like what Jesus says at the very, very end. It's all leading somewhere. Um, some, some commentaries are like, well, 16 through 18 kind of feels out of the blue, almost out of nowhere. Um, but it's important, and it's directly tied into context. Jesus lays out this, like, intentionally absurd scenario, like nobody lights a lamp, um, hides it under a jar, puts it under a bed, which I would say, yes, Jesus, but I have definitely seen my kids put a light under their bed because they're scared. Um, or they put it on, a, they, what do they do with it? They put it on a lampstand. And it's not just for them. Um, they do it so that those who enter may see the light. There's an outward focus that comes. You know what happens when you start to bear fruit? Is the fruit for the tree? The fruit is for the next tree. It's for the people who are drawn to it. The fruit is meant to make a garden. And that's the point. Before we can ever get to the work of building, we have to be a garden. We have to cultivate good soil in a hunger for the word of God, in a hope that he will fulfill his promises, and in an honesty that we can sway, that we can move, but also in an understanding that his grace is to bring us back in forgiveness and mercy over and over and over again. This is the story of our team. It's the story of our staff. We long for it to be the story of our church, a people who are good soil where the fruit of God is evident in their lives. This is what God longs for your life to be. And so every week we have the opportunity to return to that. One of the things that um, we really try to do in every sermon is we want to create a space. We believe that the spirit that was at work in inviting you here today, you know, I, I love, uh, one of my favorite writers says that God starts moving when you wake up in the morning for church. He's already been at work. Um, for me, it feels like work when I finally get up out of bed and like brush my teeth and get in the shower, all that. But God has already been at work, and not just in you. And everyone else who's here in this space, his spirit has been at work. And so we don't want to quench what the spirit does. We're going to invite you. I'm going to call the band up here today. Um, we're going to sing this song. It's a song that means a lot to us. It's called Good Ground. And it's an invitation. There's a line in this song uh, that you'll hear over and over. Make us good ground. And as we sing this song today, you're welcome to sit, you're welcome uh, to stand, to engage with it. But the point of a sermon is to acknowledge a tension that the Word of God presents that you might wrestle with it. You see, we're all called, every church, every faithful person, to be their own kind of parable, a representation of deeper meaning that attracts people towards light that they might wrestle with the truths of who God is and who they were called to be. And so today in this space, I invite you to pray. There's three scenarios there where you might be separated from the truth, the needed truth of the word of God. Maybe your heart is hardened today. There's a God who can make it soft, as Ezekiel says, who longs to give you a new heart of flesh. Maybe you're hopeless and you're broken. There's a God, Scripture says, that holds all things together. And maybe you haven't been honest with yourself 
about the ways you've drifted, Jesus is always faithful to welcome you back. And so in this space, I invite you to wrestle with those things, to speak to God and to let him speak back to you. In a moment, we'll wrap up and do communion. But for now, just sit in this space as the band plays and leads you.